Oh my, ever wondered or been asked about the parasite risk that dog parks pose to our pets? Well, Dr. Little is here to answer all of your questions. This is actually the first of four episodes discussing parasites from intestinal parasites to heartworms to fleas and ticks. So if you enjoy this episode, be sure to keep an eye out for the next one. For now, let me tell you a little bit about my guest and we'll jump in. Dr. Susan Little is a Regents Professor and Kroll Ewing Chair in Veterinary Parasitology at the Center for Veterinary Health Sciences at Oklahoma State University. She's recognized internationally as a leader in veterinary parasitology and vector-borne disease. She teaches veterinary parasitology and oversees a research program centered on tick-borne diseases and zoonotic parasites. She's founder and co-director of the National Center for Veterinary Parasitology, a past president of the American Association of Veterinary Parasitologists, and an emeritus member and past president of the Companion Animal Parasite Council, or CAPC. Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our episode. Dr. Susan Little is joining us today to do our four-part series about parasites. We're starting with managing intestinal parasites in dogs and cats. Dr. Little, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Oh, it is my pleasure. Trust me, I have so many questions. (laughs) (laughs) So we've heard a lot about parasites in dog parks over the past years. Can you just recap some of what we've learned about the risks of parasites at dog parks and how we should be thinking about that data in practice? Right. So we did a large scale national survey of dog parks in the summer of 2019. And we worked with researchers and veterinarians at Elenco and IDEX. And we all just really wanted to know how common are parasites at dog parks, which I think most veterinarians have suspected for a while that could be a thing. So we visited, (laughs) we fanned out across the US and we visited 288 dog parks in 30 different metro areas. We talked to owners about their dogs, which owners were happy to do, and we collected fecal samples and then tested them for parasites. And sure enough, we found parasites. About one in five dogs, a little over 20%, was infected that day that we saw them at the park. And altogether, about 85% of the parks had at least one infected dog. Now, we only sampled about 10 dogs per park to try and get broad geographic representation in a given area. So you can imagine if we'd sampled 20 dogs per park or 30 dogs per park, we likely would have found parasites at every park we went to. Absolutely. So how do we talk to our clients who are concerned and, you know, just in general about dog parks? Should they avoid dog parks? Should they be cautious? What should we be telling them? Yeah, I wouldn't say avoid dog parks at all because they're really such a key part of communities now. I mean, people love their dog parks and people and dogs really need that exercise and that escape and that chance to romp and play and socialize. So dog parks are really critical part of the of the park landscape. But yeah, if your dog goes to dog parks or just really just lives in the world, if it walks around the neighborhood on a leash, if it goes to dog daycare, goes hiking with you, hangs out in the backyard, they're gonna encounter parasites. I mean, that's just part of the life of a dog. And so those parasites are gonna do their thing and infect the dogs. And we have to keep up our efforts to make sure they're protected. We learned from the dog park survey that parasites are common, and in particular, giardia, hookworms, and whipworms are really common. 
We didn't see many roundworms at the dog parks and that surprises veterinarians, but most of the dogs at the dog parks were adults. Almost 90% were over 12 months of age. And so, you know, roundworms are in younger dogs, but Giardia, hookworms, whipworms, they're common, they're out there and they're a risk for adult dogs for sure. Sure. So just kind of be cautious in those arenas and make sure we're doing good intestinal parasite control. Yeah. And, and we asked the owner some questions when we collected the samples. So we asked, are, is your dog on intestinal parasite control, right? Like, what are you doing about, about parasites? Not in a combative way, just is your dog (laughs) unpreventive? And then we asked, has your dog ever been diagnosed with a parasite? And if the owner said, yes, their dog was on preventive, those dogs were much less likely to be infected. We didn't check medical records. We didn't, you know, confirm that they they were accurate that their dog was on a on a preventive. But if they thought their dog was on a preventive, those dogs were much less likely to be infected. Um, it wasn't zero, so dogs still need to be tested for parasites. But it was significantly lower. And then that second question: Has your dog ever been diagnosed with a parasite? If the owner said yes, those dogs were more likely to be on preventive. So just the actions that we try and take in practice every day of testing dogs for parasites, if we find parasites and show those owners their dogs at risk, those owners are more likely to be compliant and accept the recommendation for preventive use. So really that testing really makes a difference too. Oh my goodness. That's so good to hear that that's making a difference and um, impacting owners and pets. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So we titled this session Beyond Dog Parks for a Reason. How do you see the dog park data fitting into our understanding about the overall risk of parasites in pet dogs? Yeah, so it's really key to our understanding. We went to dog parks because that's where the dogs were. Um, We wanted to look at a cross-section of dogs in the U.S. and at all different regions and different walks of life and see what the prevalence was. And we did find parasites in all regions, more in the south and the Midwest, a bit lower in the northeast and the west, but not dramatically lower. So the parasites are everywhere. But we really went to the dog parks out of convenience. I think if we had gone like door to door through neighborhoods, which would be impossibly awkward (laughs) and collected fecal samples from dogs, right? We would have found the same or maybe even higher prevalence, which means that dogs that are just spending their morning and evening walk around the neighborhood, you know, they're likely encountering parasites along the way because their neighbor's dogs have parasites, right? So the parasites are just out there. And really the dogs that go to dog parks are pretty well cared for. I mean, someone loves them enough to put them in a car or walk them to the park and let them play. So they they might be receiving more care than the average pet dog in the US. They weren't all receiving veterinary care. They weren't all following the veterinarian's recommendation to be on parasite control. And we found a lot of parasites, but we know that's true in the general dog population too. We know a lot of pet dogs don't go to the veterinarian as adults. They aren't on preventives, um, but they still live among us. And so we really need to keep working to protect our patients and keep trying to bring more dogs into that fold of care and parasite control. Absolutely. They live among us and so do their parasites. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So you mentioned Giardia. What should we be telling owners that are dealing with Giardia in their dog? Yeah. Giardia is such an interesting parasite. It's incredibly common. It was common at the dog parks. But what's interesting is that many dogs, most dogs, even if they're infected, they manage that infection just fine. A few develop diarrhea. Those are the ones we remember and we think about. But, um, and then, you know, when they do develop diarrhea, we have to treat. 
manage the symptoms. And if it's intractable or doesn't respond to treatment, we have to try and find those underlying issues. So symptomatic dogs require that close medical management. And that's often where our mind goes when we think about Giardia. But there's a lot of clinically normal dogs that just test positive for Giardia. And I don't worry about those as much as I used to. Adult dogs that occasionally have Giardia in their feces, they're likely to develop immunity, manage that infection. I mean, if they go out to a pond or a puddle or a water feature at a dog park, a lot of the dog parks have fountains and play areas with water. So I can just see the Giardia cysts right in the water. <laughs> and if the dogs ingest a lot of cysts, then they could get a clinically significant infection. So we need to limit risk, but many infected dogs do okay. And then that zoonotic fear that so many of us were brought up with about Giardia, um, we now know that Giardia is really a low-risk zoonosis, if it's zoonotic at all. The common genotypes in cats and dogs aren't, don't infect people, aren't found in people. So we don't at least have that added concern of that serious health risk, of potential human health risk. People still get Giardiasis, but they usually get it from other people or from water contaminated by cysts from other people rather than from dogs and cats. I'm so glad we're doing this talk. That was a major question I had is, okay, so we diagnosed Giardia and, and like you said, many of the dogs will fight it off, but what do we tell the owners about a, the risk to them? So um, that's really interesting because like you said, brought up with that fear of zoonoses with Giardia. Yeah, absolutely. And we still should practice good hygiene and, you know, pick up feces with, with gloved hands or bagged hands, dispose of it with municipal waste, wash hands, that kind of, like all that's really important. But at least it doesn't look like we don't have evidence that there's much transmission of Giardia from dogs to people. And so that's somewhat reassuring. Yeah, absolutely. We can never say never, but at least there's sure. not a lot of evidence. <laughs> uh, um, what about hookworms? I see hookworms a lot. Um, they're really common around here. Any particular challenges facing us in trying to control hookworms? Yeah, hookworms are common. They were the most common nematode that we found in dogs. And especially in the South, over 15% of the dogs at dog parks were infected that one day that we tested them with hookworms. And if we look at it in the parks, over 70% of the parks in the South had hookworms. So you can't really go to a dog park in the Southern US and not encounter a hookworm risk. And we did find them in every region of the US, but in the Southeast where it's warm and humid and the larvae thrive, definitely very high. And we've seen that prevalence increasing in the past few years. And so folks were watching that closely and there's a few thoughts on why the prevalence is increasing. One is we've seen some shifts in weather patterns. So it's warmer and more humid in many years and hookworms like that, that kind of weather. So that might be helping them do better in the environment. Another is that we've had um, increased activity with rescue and rehoming efforts, right? So a lot of shelter dogs are going from the Southern US to other areas of the country. And when you adopt a dog, you adopt its hookworms and bring those into the community too. But we also know that there's resistant strains of hookworms. We have resistance in hookworms. And we have resistance to pyrantel. And we've expected that, known about that because it's been around for so long. Pyrantel is one of our longstanding antelmintics, but it's also hookworm resistance to fenbendazole has been described and to the macrocyclic lactones. So those are pretty much the three drugs we have, right, to treat hookworms. So that could be a huge problem. At first it was mostly greyhounds and it still is, but there's several cases now in pet dogs and in breeding kennels. And so we worry if those dogs go out into dog parks or to walk through their neighborhood, um, and the owners don't pick up after them, we could see spillover to pet dogs. So 
I did want to ask you, I've definitely encountered cases of resistant hookworms. Uh, I think one pet that I was treating ended up enrolled in a study. I want to say it was through UGA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, doing a study on resistant hookworms. And exactly, it was exactly what you described, resistant to pyrantal, resistant to fenbendazole, nothing was working. Do you have any suggestions in those cases of what we reach for? Like, what are we seeing? Because we don't want to make the resistance worse, but also need to get rid of them in this dog. Yeah, absolutely. Resistant hookworms can be really challenging to clear. We first try that triple deworming. So the three different antomintics from three different drug classes all at the same time. So that would be pyrantel, fenmendazole, and a macrocyclic lactone. Usually folks like the topical moxidectin, imidacloprid combination, and we do that topical moxidectin or transdermal moxidectin because it stays high for longer. You have that steady state, but you have to do all three, the benzimidazole, the macrocyclic, and the pyrantel. And then if that doesn't work and there's still a persistent hookworm infection, then we have to go off-label with a drug like emodepside. Now we have emodepside for cats, emodepside's in Profender, that emodepside prosequantel combination, but using it in dogs, it has to be done with caution and a bit of research first. There's some good articles on how to do it, but you need to spend a little bit of time thinking through that rather than just like taking a cat drug and using it in a dog, right? And there's resources out there to help with it for sure. But testing is the first step. We have to recognize the infections are happening, that they're occurring in spite of preventive use, you know, that hookworms are a problem and then we'll recognize those resistant hookworms and hopefully figure out ways to clear them. Yes, yeah, recognize them and get rid of them. Yeah. What about whipworms? Uh, sometimes I'll hear colleagues say, well, I can treat them if I diagnose them. You know, let's not worry about something. If Let's not make a problem if there's not one here. How, how would you respond to something like that? Yeah, so whipworms were the other common nematode that we found across the U.S. in the dog park study, and we see it, of course, in shelters all the time, too. And I worry about whipworms for sure, because so many dogs aren't protected against whipworms. They might be on a preventive, but it's one that doesn't work for whipworms. And so really, they're um, at risk. They're completely unprotected against that whipworm threat. But I also worry about whipworms because they can really wreak havoc on a dog's large intestine if they're allowed to take hold and if those infections persist. And they're more difficult to diagnose than either hookworms or giardia. The eggs of whipworms are shed in lower numbers. They don't float as well. The infections are often overlooked. And while they're not being diagnosed, that pathology is continuing to accumulate in the dog. Um, and they're definitely overlooked if the practice is just doing passive benchtop flotation instead of centrifugal flotation, because we know that centrifugal flotation is more sensitive, especially for whipworms, because the eggs are heavier, they don't float as well, and they're not as a high number. IDEX developed a whipworm antigen test, and it was the first of the nematode antigen tests available, in part because parasitologists know that whipworms are the one we're going to miss. And so um, a test to try and find those missed diagnoses was developed. So really thinking we'll just treat it when we see it can cause problems because we might not see it. Even if it's there, we might not be able to find it. And then in the worst cases, and I don't know if you've seen this in practice, but in those cases where a dog brings whipworms home and then there's eggs in the backyard, the eggs build up, the dog reinfects itself. And so it ends up with a really heavy burden of whipworms over time. You can actually end up with electrolyte imbalance so severe that it looks like Addison's disease. And so then you do the ACTH stem and it's normal, 
And then the next step is deworming for whipworms, which sounds like the podcast just kind of skipped over to a different <laughs> recording, right? Because why are we talking about that? And internal medicine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it just speaks to the harm whipworms can cause over time. And the upside is you get to treat an endocrine disease and heal the dog. But the downside is it wasn't an endocrine disease at all. It was um, just a really intense whipworm infection. Goodness. Yeah. I've been fortunate. I am in the Southeast. So lots of parasites. We have diagnosed whipworm infections and I know that there's that pseudo Addisonian crisis that can result from them. But luckily at this point, as far as I know, I haven't seen one because that is like, that is a scary thing yeah. that's out there knowing that this parasite that apparently is very common. I really didn't think of it as that common until you know you shared this data here. Uh, is is out there and can cause these problems. Yeah, and we have diagnosed it. We see it sometimes in vet student dogs, whipworm infection, where they're on a preventive, but they're not on a preventive that works for whipworms. And of course, they go to the dog park, they go to their friend's house who also have dogs, they're very social with their dogs. And so eventually that whipworm infection will, will take hold. Goodness gracious, parasites are <laughs> prolific. <laughs> Uh, so what about tapeworms? You know, we hear tapeworms are common, but we rarely get positive fecals in terms of tapeworm eggs. Are tapeworms something we need to be worrying about routinely deworming for? How do we handle those? Yeah. So tapeworms are another one of those covert parasites. They're like whipworms. So they're, they're in our patients, but we often don't know it. And I would say they're, they're much more covert than whipworms. They're even harder to diagnose. I don't have data on this, but I often think clients diagnose more tapeworm infections than veterinarians or veterinary technicians because they're with the dogs day in and day out and, you know, picking up the feces. They see the proglottids are passed. And so they tell us that their dog has tapeworm. And that's probably the most common way that we know. And I do know that clients really hate tapeworms. They just, they're so grossed out by them. They see those modal proglottids. And I understand, I mean, even as a parasitologist, I get that they're really disgusting. So we don't have to worry about tapeworms. Most of the time in most of the U.S. in terms of a medical concern, there's a few exceptions that I'll mention, but we don't have to worry so much about the medical risk, but the clients worry about tapeworms. And so the harm they cause is to the human-animal bond, and they can make an indoor dog an outdoor dog, or at least like a downstairs dog, right? Because they don't want to be around that thing that's producing the tapeworm proglottids. And we want owners to have that close bond. Um, for the dog's sake and the owner's sake, but also just so the dog gets the care that it needs, right? So the exceptions I mentioned where tapeworms can do medical harm are with Echinococcus, which is a tapeworm many of us learned about in vet school and maybe haven't thought about a lot since because it's not that common in most of the U.S., but we're seeing more cases reported out of Canada and the northern U.S. We've even had a case as far south as Virginia, um, and so we're watching that situation closely because dogs can become not just the definitive host for Echinococcus, but an aberrant intermediate host and develop those huge metacystos, the metacystode cysts, those really big unilocular, multilocular cysts. And Echinococcus is zoonotic, so it's a public health concern. There's a few other ways tapeworms can make dogs sick. If you get a really large number of tinea in a small breed dog, or we see that more in a cat, you can actually see an impaction. So the cat presents with what looks like a foreign body and then at surgery, you find out you're deworming. You go in to do a laparotomy thinking you're taking out a foreign body. That's terrible. Yeah. I don't like laparotomies anyway, let alone when I find a bunch of, bunch exactly. of tapeworms. <laughs> and they're usually still moving. And oh, yeah. <laughs> and even like flea tapeworm, dipolidium, if a person, usually it's a child and just a flea, they'll get infected with that. 
it's not a severe medical concern, but it definitely damages the human-animal bond when the parent learns that the child got infected with a parasite from their pet, and here you are, the veterinarian, you know, supposed to control that parasite. So, so tapeworms are a concern for sure. Sure, sure. Not excited to hear about echinococcus making its way south. That's a little, yeah. little concerning. So if you were going to sum up best practices for managing intestinal parasites, given what we know about the risks at the dog park and everywhere there are dogs, what would you say? Yeah, so the parasites are out there. That's the first thing I think to realize. They aren't going away. They're really common. When a dog is well cared for, parasites become much less common because of the preventives. And I think what can then happen is those of us that see well cared for dogs think they're gone. The parasites are not gone. They're extremely common. And the reason they're such low prevalence in our patients is because of our efforts to control them. So we have to really keep up our defenses. It's that success penalty, right? What we're doing is working, which is why we don't see them. And so we have to make sure we keep doing that. And the way we control them is through monthly intestinal parasite control. And it really needs to be monthly. So that's the second thing that I would stress. We don't have injectable long-term products that protect dogs from hookworms and whipworms and roundworms and tapeworms for six months or 12 months the way we can with heartworm-only products. So monthly is our only option. And dogs in the world are getting exposed. They're getting reinfected on a regular basis, weekly or even daily, depending on their lifestyle. And so we have to make sure we're clearing those infections before they can do too much harm or contaminate the environment at home. And then the other point I would say is that managing means regular testing. So it's not just you know throwing control products at the problem. It's also making sure we're testing at least once a year. Some groups recommend twice a year testing. But even if a dog's on preventive, we know preventives aren't 100%. Compliance can be a challenge. You know, it's all those, all those things we already know. Preventives don't work for all intestinal parasites. Resistance can develop. So we have to keep testing to make sure we're finding the infections when they occur. And with all the options we have, it's a great time to be a veterinarian. It's a great time to be a dog. But we, we have to keep up our efforts to um, continue to educate owners about why it matters, why it's important. I think that's such a good reminder to keep up the testing because, you know, sometimes if you don't see parasites after test, after test, after test, you're kind of like, oh, you know, we're, we're doing okay. Things are fine. Um, but so important to remind all of us, especially those of us like me who are in the Southeast U.S., that the parasites are out there. They're everywhere to test for them. And then when you find them to make sure you clear them. Right. And that, that after treatment testing is important too, to make sure they're gone, um, especially with hookworms now. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Little, thank you so much for this talk. It was very educational. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with us? Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I guess my final thoughts would be, you know, a lot of us have spent a lot more time with our dogs than we have been able to in the last few decades with the pandemic. We're going, we're, you know, the highlight of our day and our dog's day is that walk that we take or the chance we get to go to the park with them or go on a hike. And so it becomes so important to make sure that they're protected, that they're getting that regular care through monthly prevention and uh, routine testing to find those parasites. A big thank you to everyone for joining us and to Dr. Little and Elenco for making this episode possible. If you'd like to find more episodes like this, click on the education tab on Betfolio's webpage. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at 
You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. Thank you.